Good evening, and welcome to Progressively Horrified, the show where we hold horror to standards it absolutely never agreed to. <laughs> Good evening and welcome to Progressively Horrified, the podcast where we hold horror to progressive standards that never agreed to. Tonight, we're talking about our third film by director Jordan Peele, part horror movie, part summer blockbuster. It's called Nope. I'm your host, Jeremy Whitley, and with me tonight, I have a panel of cinephiles and cenobites. First, they're here to challenge the sexy werewolf, sexy vampire binary, my co-host, Ben Kahn. Ben, how are you tonight? Going into this movie, I really did not expect to think to myself, huh, Getting real Tremors vibes from this. Do love right? some Tremors. Which, by the way, we absolutely have to fucking do Tremors at some point. And the cinnamon roll of Cenobites, our co-host, Emily Martin. How are you tonight, Emily? Feeling every emotion. I mean, I think this movie really sets the tone by the emotional whiplash. I was just like, okay, make sure that my cross belt is buckled. My hands and arms are inside the vehicle. Let's go. So this was a ride. Yep. And uh, our guest tonight, first educator and filmmaker, Jay Joseph. Jay, how are you tonight? I'm good. It's very good to be back. I, too, I'm excited to talk about this film. Uh, I don't think Jordan Peele's actually ever made a film that I dislike. I'm even an apologist for us. So, Oh, us is great. Yeah. yeah. The man does not miss. He's three for three in my book. Yeah, he's he's great. Pretty much all the stuff he's, all the movies he's written, I'm a fan of. So, Including Keanu. Yes. The one where he's trying to rescue a kitten named Keanu. I haven't yes. seen that, alas. It's very underappreciated. It's, okay. It's him and uh, Keegan-Michael Keegan Key. Michael Key. So. Yeah. The half-brother of Dwayne McDuffie. <laughs> that is a true fact. True facts. And our other guest tonight, our good friend and English educator, Emmanuel Lipscomb. Emmanuel, welcome back. Thanks. I'm excited to be doing three for three for Jordan Peele movies, and I'm super stoked for pieces of media where they say the title so so much and they say it so well in this movie <laughs> like when oj gets back in the truck and you're like that's my favorite nope of the movie yeah and it's not tongue-in-cheek when they say the title like because it, it no. feels very natural nope. they say it when i the viewer am having that same reaction of just like nope i'm out of here yeah it is almost a week at the camera exactly exactly even when they're not saying it in the movie i'm saying it. it is wild that i think like the truly creepiest scene of the movie is the fake out with the kids dressed as the aliens like when the second one comes out of the shadows then like he's just like nope no it's super scary yeah i'm like yeah that was really really creepy for a fake out scare scene yeah, I have so many things I want to say about that, but we should get into it because mwah, chef's kiss. Yeah, so uh, I am I decided to do the recap on this one tonight, which is, boy, it's a it's a hard one to recap briefly. So I'm going <laughs> to hit as many points as I can without uh, boring everybody to death here. Uh, it is directed by Jordan Peele. It is written by Jordan Peele. It stars Daniel Kaluuya, Kiki Palmer, Brandon Perea, Michael Wincott, Stephen Yen, and... Keith David. It is a monkey pop production, which feels especially sinister this time around. Oh, yes. Right? We start off with Nahum, chapter three, verse six. I will cast abominable filth upon you, make you vile, and make you a spectacle. This movie's going to be a lot about spectacle. We open on a chimp stalking a bloody television stage uh, where he has 
killed some people. Uh, a loose shoe from a woman stands straight up in the middle of the stage. He taps her to try and get her to get up or make sure she's dead. It's unclear. Then he barrels the camera and we're somewhere to completely different. We move to Otis Jr., who goes by OJ, played by Daniel Kaluuya. As he feeds and runs the horses on his ranch, OJ is soft-spoken, reserved, kind, and really in touch with the animals. He's working with his dad, Otis Sr., who's played by Keith David, but don't get too attached. Random objects begin falling from the sky, and Otis Sr. falls off of his horse, bleeding profusely. OJ tries to get him to the hospital, but he bleeds out on the way. The doctors find a nickel lodged in his head, having apparently fallen from the plane overhead, which uh, OJ then keeps in, in an evidence bag, which is real rough. Now we cut to OJ sometime later on a movie set. He's a horse wrangler, but really bad at the interpersonal interaction part of working on a, a movie set. He mutters, he feels out of place, and he can't give the presentation and is upset that people aren't listening to him. Enter Emerald, Tiki Palmer, his younger sister. Emerald is talkative, excitable, generally undependable, and very very gay he real gay it's great she gives an engaging presentation in which she she also plugs all of her side hustles before heading to the craft services table and leaving uh, oj again to deal with all the people she is just enjoyable she is a vape pulling big pants small shirt wearing mega lesbian in this movie and it is great and delightful yeah, just, just watching these two together as siblings is fantastic because they have such like clearly opposing styles of everything. And like you can just imagine what their lives with each other have been like uh, when you see them together. What I love is that Otis Jr. is very good with animals, but not good with people. And M is very good with herself, right? but not good with people. Also, you keep describing, you keep using all these great adjectives to describe OJ, but I feel like we can just sum it up with, OJ is very autism-coded in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't read it if it was that or Grease or, you know, a mix of the two, but absolutely. Like, I, I think he's definitely meant to be on the autism spectrum is definitely how I interpreted his character. Yeah, as somebody who has is an animal person like i've known quite a few animal people we have a lot of horse ranches up here and there's a lot of people who are just very very not people people they don't know what to say well he has an interesting cross-section of person who is awkward with people and possibly autistic and cowboy so doesn't really have to talk to people very much like yeah you know he's he's a guy who is out there on the farm with the animals and that's where he's comfortable and people annoy him OJ, I think, is a great character, great protagonist, and I can see why Kiki Palmer maybe got a little more of the attention coming out of this movie because, like, they're both absolutely incredible, but I think it's Emerald's a flashier role, but I think Daniel Kaluuya at OJ is honestly maybe even, like, a deeper role, and I, I just think the whole cast, like, especially Kaluuya and Palmer just do incredible work. Yeah, I, I think sure. having seen other Daniel Kaluuya performances really helps with appreciating just how much like he's doing a part here. Right. That this is not he's not just a quiet guy. This is the man who won an Oscar for playing Fred fucking Hampton. Yeah. If you hadn't seen him in a bunch of other movies. You might think, oh, this is just like he's just a quiet guy anyway. This is just how he is. Uh, but like nah, even even him at award ceremonies is on like a whole different amped level than like 
what this character is. So yeah, the the people don't pay attention to him, the horse box and the crew uh, freaks out and they get fired on the spot. Uh, this is a huge deal for OJ, but Emerald is really just on to the next thing. Uh, she just needs a ride back to the house. On the way, they make a stop to sell off one of their horses to Ricky Park, the owner of Jupiter's Claim. He goes by Jupe, which sounds like uh, some sort of slur or something. Okay. Uh, I wasn't the only one. Good. Yeah. <laughs> yep. like, this makes me feel uncomfortable. Which really is sure for Jupiter, which is not his name either. It's the name of a character he played in a movie when he, or in a TV show when he was a kid. I mean, um, Ricky's whole deal is I have absolutely no idea how to process the m- incredible amounts of trauma in my life. Yeah, he's a really interesting character. And I want to talk about him as well because his There's a lot story. To talk about. Yeah, his story is so intense. And, uh, you know, does anyone here know about the the thing that that's based on? Oh, no, I don't know. Okay, let's save that. We'll get back to it later in that. Uh, (laughs) This part is, of course, played by uh, Stephen Yeun, who is, as always, fantastic. Also great. Great cast. Great fucking cast. Yeah. When you're when you're third or fourth build to Stephen Yeun, you've made a good movie. (laughs) Uh, Jupiter's Claim is a Wild West themed park. Uh, where Jupe and his family dish out old-timey nostalgia. Uh, Jupe is buying up horses one by one from the ranch and now making an offer to buy the whole ranch from OJ. Emerald, meanwhile, is walking around the whole office and being extra about everything. The place is filled with stuff from his career. She's picking up every souvenir that he has, including the picture from Gordy's home, the TV show he did uh, that we saw a clip of at the beginning, and now we know what it was where a monkey that lived with a suburban family beat the shit out of people that were working on the thing. Um, Jupe shows her the secret room where she had, where he has all this memorabilia from the event he saw that he was present for, uh, where Gordy, this trained ape that was on the show, freaked out, turned on the actors, and beat them to death. We'll see more of this later, but right now he talks about it by talking about a sketch they did about it on Saturday Night Live where um, Chris Kattan played the monkey that was <laughs> murdering people. I was so hoping we were getting a Chris Kattan cameo after that. Absolutely. I don't know if I was. It would be a different direction. Imagine if like, oh man, imagine if it turned out like it's Chris Kattan in the UFO. Yeah, and he's, <laughs> instead of talking about the event, and he is talking about how good the Saturday Night Live sketch about this horrible thing that happened to him was, which tells you, I think, a lot about <laughs> Jupe and where his head is at, because he is talking about it like it happened to somebody completely different. My jaw was dropped that entire monologue, just how psychologically fucked it was and how great Stephen Young was delivering it. Yeah. Yeah, the siblings head back to the ranch where they uh, break into dad's liquor cabinet and hobby weed and let loose for a while. Uh, We learn the story about Jean Jacket, the horse that is supposed to be Emerald's, but instead dad put it to work because he got a gig running horses for the Scorpion King movie. So instead (laughs) of her getting this horse that she was supposed to get, she got to watch OJ and Otis train it. And OJ got to be part of being on set on the Scorpion King, presumably met the rock. They don't mention that. Even though the Scorpion King ended up using camels in the eventual film. Their night is disrupted when uh, Emerald notices Ghost, one of their horses, is out in the arena. OJ goes to see what Ghost is up to. And Ghost makes a weird ass noise and jets off through the valley, jumping the fence completely, running towards 
downhill where Jupiter's claim is. He gets in the uh, the uh, golf cart to go see what the deal is with this, but uh, he cannot find Ghost, and there are weird, like, very localized blackouts that even take out his, his phone and stuff. There's the sound of a strange presentation going on down at uh, Jupiter's claim, and OJ sees something he can't explain that looks like a flying saucer that goes moving in and out between clouds. He then goes back and tells Emerald, who comes up with an idea of capturing this thing on camera to get rich and famous and possibly meeting Oprah, which is an idea OJ uh, presents because he can't figure out who else they would, you know, be going to talk to. Oprah's the the height of fame. That term, though, that they use in the movie, Joe, just the Oprah shot. Yeah, you gotta get that Oprah <laughs> shot. Like, I, I want that to become a real film term now. Film is the word that you're choosing? Yes. Okay. I want more cinematographers putting themselves into potentially fatal situations to specifically capture what they feel is an Oprah shot, a shot worthy of getting you on Oprah. Getting you on Oprah, a show that does not exist anymore. It's it's the, yes. the big one. It's Christopher Nolan making a real nuclear weapon for a fucking Oppenheimer biopic. So uh, in order to get Oprah to see their video, they proceed to Fry's Electronics where they meet the depressed and somewhat amazing UFO-obsessed Angel, played by Brandon Perea. He's an unhelpful and unfriendly uh, stalker and electronics guy until he gets a whiff that there's UFO intrigue and suddenly becomes their new best friend. He helps them install the multiple cameras. Uh, we also hear about his ex-girlfriend who just dumped him, Rebecca Diaz, who got a pilot at the CW, so dumped him and took off. She was really hot, though, promise. I do have a question for everyone, though. Yes. At what point did it sink in that Angel wasn't just a support character at Fry's and was going to be sticking around for the rest of the movie? Because <laughs> that that was one of the bigger twists that this movie presented for me. Yeah, I think the the moment that he delivers the the bit about his girlfriend getting a pilot at the CW and dumping him, I was like, oh, this character's got a backstory. He's sticking around. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and when he was like unloading the van and screaming... Just randomly, I'm like, okay. <laughs> I he screams in. out loud, which freaks out the horses. And and OJ, in his usual fashion, was like, yo, man, don't do that. Why you do that? Don't do that. <laughs> Meanwhile, Emerald steals a decoy training horse covered in pendant flags from Jupiter's claim and drives it up. Jupe shows up slightly later. It's unclear whether he knows that she stole the horse or is just there to invite them to his family's show at the claim and notices that there's a horse that looks a lot like his. Emerald pulls one of my favorite moves in this, which is here's him about to ask where they got the horse and immediately cuts him off to ask where he got his. We setting up a decoy for horse training. Oh, good. You know, we got some of those. Where'd you get get yours? (laughs) Which makes it impossible for him to then quiz her about it. Such good delivery. This whole scene is so good. The double thumbs up just kills me. Where he's just yeah. like, <laughs> I know I don't what else to do in this situation. I'm just going to do a thumbs up from a distance. The fact that they're yelling at each other over like half a kilometer of, of <laughs> land. <laughs> like, that scene was absolutely delightful. Yeah, it's, this, this cast is small but mighty. So that night there are uh, weird lights on in the stables after OJ has shut them down. Uh, He goes in to shut them off and then they turn back on again. 
He finds himself being stalked by strange aliens making weird noises. He's trying to record them on his phone as he backs away until they start popping out of other directions and one of them shows up behind him and he clocks the thing across the head just out of <laughs> reflex not knocking its head off discovering that it is in fact one of jupe's kids who is there to claim vengeance for them stealing their 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 fake horse i i should jump in to say he knocks the alien mask off he did not punch this child so hard <laughs> that his whole head came off yeah if only that's because he held back a little bit. <laughs> yes. Yes. Now, I'm not saying Daniel Kaluuya doesn't have the strength to n- knock off a child, to decapitate a child with a single punch, just that yeah. he did not do so in this in, in this film. Yeah. There's, because there's, he held back. Yeah. Yeah. I also have horse information regarding punching, but we'll get to that later. <laughs> what? <laughs> horse information. What does that mean? <laughs> I think you're going to have to explain this now. Horses fucking love boxing, man. Actually, a really great, I mean, horses, okay, horses are sturdy animals, and I've known horse trainers. Um, Hold on, hold on, hold on. Welcome to Emily's Horse Facts. Okay, it's my horse facts. Fact number one, horses are sturdy as fuck. Yeah, horses are sturdy as fuck. I think that's sort of, we take that as red, right? And sometimes, it like, okay, a dog does something bad you yell at it a cat does something bad you spray it horses do not understand this kind of subtlety so i have seen and this is what i have heard from horse trainers this is not a practice that i that i know is for sure or that i condone but apparently like say your horse is is chewing on a bucket that's bad for it i have seen horse trainers punch a horse in the face to keep it from doing stuff (laughs) <laughs> I just that can't be right. <laughs> this is these are you know small amount of people, but like in order to like get a horse's attention, I mean, okay, you saw the ghost in the beginning of the movie who had like a half of a key like stab in its flank. In its flank, yeah, and it was just like was that truck. what it was? I thought that was a wedding ring it had in it. I think it was a key with a key ring. Yeah, did it like? just halfway buried into its flank and the horse is like, you know, this is why people used to use spurs. I I feel like if we're going to show like just the main character punching a horse in the face, like on camera, that needs to be like Bill Burr, the horse trainer movie. I was picturing him being played by Dave Bautista. That's all I. Yeah. It's picturing Dave Bautista punching horses. (laughs) I've seen, I've actually seen some like, like, kung fu movies like historical kung fu movies with not literal but you know cgi horse punching but that's beside the point cgi horse horse punching is like that phrase has activated someone there's no way i'm so sorry to those of you (laughs) who have been activated i apologize now my question is do you cgi the horse or do you cgi the fist and use a real horse you cgi the horse because you don't want whoever's throwing that punch, you know, it's a lot easier to, to well, I don't know if it's easier, but it's a lot better to CGI a horse reaction and make it convincing than CGI a punch. And like, this is just because no one can draw hands. No one can draw hands. Yeah, no one can draw hands. Even computers. That's what we need to do. We need to give the AIs all the hands and then it'll, they'll explode. So there is actually, I think, a lot to say about CGI animals in this movie but we'll get after the recap yeah yeah so just to put a little cap on my horse facts don't punch a horse 
I've seen some trainers punch horses, but I'm really glad OJ didn't punch a horse because it's not a good look for a sympathetic character. <laughs> do put caps on your horses, though. Yeah, there's something I remember. I, I feel like that's the corollary of like save the cat, like save the cat. Number one. Number two, don't punch horses in the face. Don't punch horses in the face. As far as I know. All right. And this is where Alicia will insert the, the more you know music. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess our moral is don't punch horses unless you gotta, in which case do. I mean, you and can't the, let them chew on the wrong bucket, right? Unless it's the villain bad horse. Is that what um, we're coming down on? Are we um, pro or anti-horse punching? I don't know our stance anymore. I, am, I personally am anti-horse punching because I'm really not into punching anything that isn't human. I mean, that's why I would, was started with, but then I started learning about horse punching Are facts. there pro-horse punchers? No, never Apparently, mind. Apparently, we got to get back Trainers to are professionals, so they're yeah. pro-horse punchers. Yeah, yeah. so if trainers yeah. are punching horses, sure. But you should not be, you, the listener, should not be an amateur horse puncher. A layman should not punch a horse. Exactly. Yes, okay, that's, a, I feel like that's a good stance. That's, a, I can support that. But I need to bring this back to the recap. Okay, you guys, we got to let Emily finish whatever it is that she wants to say. OJ could have easily, with the amount of force that is needed to wrangle horses, punching aside, he certainly did have enough experience and strength to punch a kid's head off or at least punch a kid's head severely but he didn't and i think that that's important for his character the end i didn't realize that was the connection this was a long we never walk. see oj not that's wearing me. a big ass hoodie but mm -hmm. i'm very confident daniel kaluuya is like nothing but an absolute wall of muscles under that hoodie he wears a hat as well okay meanwhile <laughs> Angel is watching their camera feed uh, when a praying mantis climbs in in front of one of the cameras. He calls Emerald to tell her because the other camera has gone down. The thing is here. Clover is freaking out in the barn. When OJ turns around, the decoy horse is gone, leaving only a trail of flags dangling from the clouds. Uh, then it takes the real horse, sucking it up off the ground and into the round opening in the middle of this disc. This saucer, if you will. So... OJ has a dream of his father telling him that ghost is territorial and some animals just aren't fit to be trained. Something he's remembering. Meanwhile, Emerald calls one of the more preposterously named characters I've ever seen in a movie. He is played by Michael Wincott. Michael Wincott! His name is Antlers Holst. Anytime Michael Wincott shows up in a live action movie, my first reaction every time he speaks is almost like, no, stop it. You're not a real person. <laughs> I am so happy to see Michael Wincott. I'm so happy to see him in this movie. I don't see him very often. We used to see him in the 90s, like every other fucking film. And at first I thought it was uh, Lance Henriksen because they didn't really show his face. But yeah, Michael Wincott, just as good as far as I'm concerned. And, you know. Michael Wincott has a voice like a creaky basement door. In my notes I have, he sounds like Sling Blade. Like <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he is a cinematographer. Uh, that they met on their last job, the one where they got fired. He is notorious for getting the perfect shots. He discounts everything Emerald is saying uh, and hangs up on her. Angel shows up to show them something. He's been watching all the film from their cameras. And there's one low cloud that hasn't moved all day. It's just sitting up there in the same spot, waiting as all the other clouds go by. They determine that this must be where 
this creature is hanging out, just waiting and hunting up there. But now it's time for Jupe to launch his new show. But he's reliving his one big bad memory. We see back on the set of Gordy's home, we see Gordy losing it when some uh, balloons get up in the lights and start popping. Gordy murders the other actors. He kills the mom and dad hard and injures the sister. Finally, he turns and looks at Jupe, who is hiding under the table. Uh, approaches him and offers him a fist bump, which Jupe is about to return when the monkey's brains are blown out onto him in his face, basically. It's not great. It's not a great memory, but Jupe seems to have taken the wrong thing from this, which we'll we'll talk about later. Uh, Jupe is presenting the Star Lasso experience. He is attempting to feed Lucky to the thing in the clouds in order to lure it out and show it off to people. Uh, Lucky ain't about that life, and it turns out neither is this thing. Lucky's not leaving the the box, and this thing is hungry. So it eats Jupe, it eats his family, and it eats the whole crowd that's there to see it, including the girl that played his sister on the show that was already horribly mangled by the monkey in the first place. OJ then arrives with the intention of buying Lucky back or trying to find some sort of way to buy Lucky back. Uh, just in time to see the saucer moving away between clouds, it comes back for him. He runs under the sands and gets away, but gets knocked out in the process. When he comes to, he finds Lucky just standing around waiting for him. He loads Lucky into the trailer and heads home. Angel is just leaving their house when his car battery goes suddenly dead and it starts raining. He runs back into the house just as the creature starts pouring out water, blood, and all sorts of random objects that it's picked up from these people. That it just ate, coating the house and the yard in blood. OG arrives in the midst of all this. His own car battery dies in the drive, and the decoy horse gets slammed from the sky back into the windshield of his car uh, by the creature. He remembers his dad telling him that you don't look in at the eyes of animals that are angry and territorial, you defer to them. So he keeps his head down, and the thing leaves him alone. He's able to get emerald and angel to angel's van just in time for the power to come back onto the van and for them to run away they then decide to post up at a seafood restaurant and have a little bit of ptsd chill time and they talk about fish sandwiches being good oj wants to share what he's kind of figured out about this thing that it isn't a spacecraft that it's a wild animal and if they approach it right they can predict its movements and lure it out takes a while to get the other guys on board with hearing any of this but this is when emerald gets a call from good old antlers host who has seen the reports of everybody disappearing from jupiter's claim on the news and knows that she in fact wasn't full of shit and there is something up there uh that he only he can get the perfect shot of so he is in he wants to film it for recap purposes i think there's a really important point in this exchange this initial exchange with antlers holst and emerald where antlers holst remembers her from the set and so he on the phone with her he brings that up and he says you know you're you're pursuing this dream to be in the spotlight essentially and he says to her that dream is the kind of dream that you never wake up from which i think is a really important hook in terms of like this entire story and and what it's about especially what the spectacle element but carry on please so they've got a crew together now. The four of them are going to figure this out. They name the creature Jean Jacket and put together a plan to capture him on film. Antlers brings a non-electric crank camera to capture the thing. They put blinders on Lucky so that it 
It can't look up. It can't intimidate the creature, challenge the creature. They set up electronic wavy armed men all over the field to track the creature's movement. So when the creature gets near them, the fans stop blowing, they go down. So they can see where the creature is without seeing the creature as it's above them. Antlers gives a very dramatic reading of Purple People Eater, <laughs> which is one of those things that the first time I watched the movie, I was like, wow. And then the second time I watched the movie, I was like, wow. Yes. Implying that Michael Wingott has ever given a non-incredibly dramatic line reading in his life. Right. Also, yeah. when he shows up with like the camera, with like the crank camera, the high five that OJ and Emerald do is adorable <laughs> and my favorite moment between them in the whole movie. Oh, yeah. You really see it's their so like true connection after they tell well, you. I only ever see like basketball players do that. Like, and so it's such like a like you said, it's like indicative of how close they are actually. Like Yeah, that, yeah. that like rapid fire three high five thing. Yeah, it's great. She's like, I told you he'd bring a non-electric camera. Very excited about this. So they set the whole thing up where OJ is going to be the lure to bring the creature out. Well, Emerald monitors stuff from the barn and radios back and forth with them in the barn. Antlers and Angel are filming the thing from under a camouflaged harp on the hillside. Everything is going to plan until a paparazzi with a mirrorball helmet shows up on a motorcycle and decides to investigate the valley for himself. As soon as he hits the dead zone where the creature is killing all the electricity, his bike dies suddenly and throws him off of it, injuring him probably horribly. We never see... The extent of his injuries. OJ does ride out and try to save the guy. He is wearing, you know, reflective stuff everywhere, which means it's not going to go well for him. Just like it freaked out the horse when it saw its reflection. This guy won't listen to instruction, though, and OJ has to bail. He's put fake eyes on the hood of his hoodie. So he throws the hood up as he's riding away, and it looks like he's staring at the creature. So the creature follows him, allowing him to get the, the creature to the, the zone where they're they're filming, which is an incredible plan. And when the creature gets too close, he throws out a line of the tiny flags because they know he hates that the creature hates that shit now because he was all messed up by that before. <laughs> Made him throw up fake and real people, uh, fake and real horses. They get a decent shot of it, but Holst isn't satisfied. It's about to be the magic hour. So without consulting with anybody else, he wanders out and looks up at the creature and starts filming it from the open. It goes straight for him. It sucks him in. And he films the whole thing as he dies and gets, he gets sucked into the creature. He got the perfect shot and nobody's ever going to see it. It nearly gets Angel too at the point that it starts sucking up the tarp and everything. He lands near a, a deflated tube man who has eyes that are looking straight up at the thing. So he has unfortunate luck once more and is about pulled up. He just happens to be tangled up in enough barbed wire that once this thing gets him in, it does not want anything to do with him and spits him out onto the hillside. It turns to Emerald. It tries to suck her up and gets a good chunk of the barn with her and ends up throwing her across the yard as she just barely escapes getting sucked in. But she's out in the open now. This is the point where the creature starts morphing and like changing its size and shape, which is absolutely wild in this film. So good. Oh, yeah. I saw this for the first time in theaters and... Like, they don't explain what the hell is going on at any point with this, but it is very clearly, like, trying to intimidate people and, you know, straight-up changing modes at this point. Biblically Lovecraftian. And Lovecraftian in the unknown monster way, not Lovecraftian in the super racist way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so uh, the thing is right on top of Emerald, but OJ decides to... He tells Emerald to make for the motorcycle... 
and he lures the thing away by steering it straight down with Lucky. Uh, they're slowly backing away, and the creature is closing in on them. He gives her just enough room to get the motorcycle started, and she gets out of there. We do not know what happens with OJ from this point, uh, because we follow Emerald before any of that stuff resolves. Emerald gets to the motorcycle and rides it down to Jupiter's claim, where she comes up with a plan. She untethers the giant jupe-shaped balloon uh, that's in the middle of the place and sends it skyward. I did fail to mention right here that this is where she Akira slides into the uh, the place with the motorcycle. Yeah, baby. Yeah, the, the jupe balloon goes floating into space and the creature attacks it. She gets a picture of it with the coin-operated camera that's in the well that we've seen earlier in the movie as the creature attempts to eat the giant balloon both it and the creature explode to smithereen and uh people start you know rushing in having responded to all the stuff that's going down here finally emerald uh having the picture and everything turns and sees oj and lucky seemingly still alive through the uprights that say uh the out yonder uh so they're still alive in one piece or are they? Because it's a really iconic shot of them through this thing. And a lot of people have taken it to mean that OJ is dead. But it is unclear in the movie. And Jordan Peele literally refuses to tell people what his intention was. Bless uh, the end. his I heart. understand the ambiguity. But my attitude is kind of, if you don't see a character die, but you do see them show up still alive, then maybe they didn't die then. Yeah, I'm with Ben. If they didn't, if you didn't see it happen, it didn't happen. Yeah. And sometimes even if you see it happen, it didn't happen. True. And especially with the with the death of Keith David in the beginning. I mean, that was pretty like in your face. Dramatic. Yeah. Arterial spray all over the place. Uh, and then the, the shot of him dead on the table with the coin in his face. Yeah. Well, the other victims, right? Like we see inside of the creature. We yeah. all just see, no, you're yeah. gone. Like, well, hopefully he wasn't inside of the creature when the creature exploded because then he's still dead somewhere. I mean, yeah. by far. And again, this is another reason why I don't think that he was. The, I, I really don't think why OJ was eaten is we can. And this is one of the most terrifying parts of Jean Jacket. The victim screams are still very audible from Can within Jean Jacket while they're yes. being digested. So what I wondered a lot, maybe I'm a dummy, is this, are we hearing the screams of the victims or is it like an annihilation situation where like, this is a noise that the creature is making having consumed these people? Because <laughs> we don't know much about how the creature functions. And so I, I think way it's more of a <laughs> Sarlacc slow digestion. We're hearing their screams because especially with the big blood rain scene, it's like, there's lots and lots of screaming and then crunch, 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 blood rain. Yeah, there's a moment that they show after they, the thing it consumes all of the people at the Star Lasso experience. There's a moment where the screens abruptly stop, okay. which is. And that's when it starts raining meat. <laughs> yeah, where they it abruptly stop like and you sort of there's a very soft pop as to say that they've all been kind of flattened but i mean the fact that they show these people like inside this thing and it's still so uncanny this movie is so good at just the wonder element and the terror like when i first saw the movie's close encounters of the third kind when i was little it was terrifying to me and i know it had it ended with this like beautiful wonder of like the spaceship coming down and 
it still really did capitalize on not being able to see the whole thing but the resolution of that film was that ultimately the the aliens were knowable and somewhat benevolent sure. and lucas aliens yeah the george lucas aliens you know and you know this is a time when i didn't understand how movies are made so much i mean i knew it was a movie but it was still difficult to get some of that imagery out of my head and this movie made me feel the way that i it was so it was so engrossing and so terrifying it almost like seemed to unlock repressed memories of nightmares hopefully just nightmares of when i was a child and i like would have these nightmares about shit in the sky and the way that the beast of jean jacket was so quiet and you had this incredible landscape of this surreal california like upland desert and just miles and miles of sky and the moon and everything and it was not i don't feel like it was over overwrought in that way i mean it was just surreal enough and i felt like i felt that sense of wonder and i felt the the, and terror of seeing something that was unknowable this movie was so good at that with making the creature um unknowable and making the reaction to said creature relatable I was so enthralled in the film that it wasn't until that thing unfolded and started to like do its crazy jellyfish dance that I was like, holy shit, this is based on a doff of Evangelion. I looked it up and it is like legit the angels in Evangelion and of course the, the UFO from like the Davis Earth still because that's sort of the, the creature's default form is very much a UFO. But the way that it is presented, the way that it moves, uh, and also the fact that it is somewhat angelic in its display form was so fucking cool. So um, anyway, one of my initial responses. Yeah. <laughs> I, I know this is called Progressively Horrified Podcast. I know horror is usually your thing, but what genre would you say this movie is in? I mean, it really straddles it because like i feel like for the first two thirds i really knew what i was in for with this very kind of like unknowable like quasi you know like rural yet cosmic horror but then we get the last third and we get moments where there's just like straight up indiana jones adventure music playing yeah i i think when i came out of this movie there was a lot of like when when we first saw it, I saw it in theaters with Felicia back when it first came out. There was a lot of people that were very like, oh, this isn't a horror movie. And I, I don't think that's the true. fuck it isn't. I was going to say, look at the thing in the sky and say it's not. Oh, you're not. Steven Young gets digested on screen and you're going to tell me this isn't a horror movie. I did not realize like it took me a little bit with the characters to realize just what they were trapped in. What a horrifying death. Yeah, you're who the fuck is watching the blood rain scene and going, nope, not a horror movie. Yeah, yeah. I, my reaction to it was like, it is part horror movie. It is also what I can only really qualify as a Spielberg movie that like yes. it is something with a big central special effect that somehow manages to build characters that you love and care about and the fate of which matters that gets you really invested in the story but also there's a big fucking shark in the middle of it that you're like that's scary as hell you know that is the thing i think i'm here for but also by the end of it you're like god i hope he gets away i hope everything's fine yeah and, and it's it's sort of adventure in 
the way that only those things do it. It just barely, I think, misses out on being a family movie. I think it feels like Jurassic Park to me in a real in yeah. a real way. And the way that like post-Jurassic Park, Jurassic Park movies do not feel like Jurassic Park. It has a, a sense of imagination and wonder to it that is is regularly missing from horror movies and is largely missing from, you know, action adventure movies currently. Yeah, I, I update my answer. This is Lovecraftian Jaws. That's a genre. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Eldritch Jaws. We're going to need a bigger horse. <laughs> I think it's interesting that you say that it's like a Spielberg movie because I'm sure, looking man. at some of its details. It almost feels like a J.J. Abrams thing, like super Cloverfield, Tim Cloverfield Lane, where you're just like, the, all right, I think I know what this is. And then there's a twist. It's like, all right, I know what this is now. And now it's something completely different. It's pulling aspects of all these different things, making it its own thing. It, yeah. I think it's so interesting that you bring up J.J. Abrams because... J.J. James was involved in Cloverfield, right? I'm not making yeah. that up. Yeah, the first one. Yeah. Okay, yes. Yeah. So, like, I feel like kind of that may have been one of the last, like, before this, one of the last big, like, monster movies, if I'm recalling correctly. And I feel like you can really see, like, what the movie doesn't tell you, I think is really emblematic of, like, the difference in approaching storytelling. Like, Cloverfield doesn't tell you the origin of Cloverfield, because it wants you finding them, the putting the clues together and the supplemental material. Like it wants to tease, not telling you the origin of Cloverfield. Nope, doesn't tell you the origin of Jean Jacket because it doesn't matter. Right. It, it, all that matters is that it's here. It's completely unknowable. Good. Stew in the mystery of the unknowableness. You don't even know if it's an alien. Well, I also think it's probably the approach to marketing, right? Like there's no ARG for Jean Jacket. It's just. Yeah. Know. God, that was really J.J. Abrams' golden era was like when ARGs were a thing. That was his, that God, that was his fucking time to shine. These are great answers. And actually, I think for me, no, paired with everything, everywhere, all at once are part of kind of a newish phenomenon. I feel like we're seeing in films where we have something called like the anti-genre, right? Where films are coming in and they're not adhering to any one specific genre, but because you're like, so engrossed in the characters and in seeing how the story in the world develops, you know, you're there for the entire story. And and I think most writers worth their salt know that, you know, so long as you have kind of like strong characters, you're willing to, to kind of stick it out for anything that they go through, you know. And so when I watched it, at first I felt like I was watching a Western and then I felt like I was, you know, the, the anime influences were very clear to me. It had a bit of that kind of like dark humor, that dark comedy to it, especially with characters like Antlers and Angel coming in. Definitely the horror elements, something like the sci-fi elements. So it's this interesting mesh of genres that I feel like conveys that feeling of like you're kind of unsteady and, and not sure where to land because it's just like, just like the experience that OJ and Em will go through in terms of trying to figure out what this creature is, you're trying to figure out, you know, what kind of movie you're you're watching. And I don't think that's something that a lot of um, directors can really pull off just yet. You know, I, I don't think they can come in, let alone combining so many genres and breaking genre conventions to kind of keep the audience there. But, you know, I think if a lot of directors tried this, that they would end up getting themselves and the audience lost in the narrative. And I think that's kind of what's so great about this film. To me, where the narrative really came together was that reveal that the UFO isn't a ship. It's a living creature and it's an animal. 
This isn't a hyper intelligent watching being. This is it's an animal. And that to me was when the theme like crystallized. And that's where I understood like, oh, this is why Gordy and the chimpanzee stuff like this isn't just unrelated, dark weirdness. This is all part of what I took as the central theme. Really what I got the most out of it in terms of like stuff to dig into. And I, I think this is a progressively horrified first was uh, animal rights and especially animals in the entertainment industry and like how they're used, how they're exploited and, you know, and the danger of us underestimating and misunderstanding what it truly is to be an animal and what animals can do. I think there's I think there's a lot to that. Before we get too much into that, I did want to add sort of to Jay's point. What's really interesting about this to me, especially when you put it next to everything everywhere all at once, is that in addition to being cross-genre, they are cross-cultural in a way that these types of genre movies traditionally haven't been. Um, and, you know, that everything everywhere all at once is a movie about a, you know, Chinese immigrant family that is also a romance, that is also a family movie, that is also a sci-fi movie. You know, this is a horror movie. This is an action movie. But it's also an undeniably black movie. There's so much about these two characters and their interactions that is clearly written by a person that shares, you know, the the sort of like history and, and language with these characters that I think often rings false when in a lot of these movies you have a character who's a black sidekick or fourth or fifth kid in the group who's just like barely considered, you know, not not to point fingers at Stephen King, but often, you know, but we're pointing fingers at but point fingers at Stephen King. Yeah, there's there's a lot of the black kid in it in you know various horror movies they're like all right and also there's a black kid his thing is that he's black you know it, and these are these are very fully realized interesting diverse characters even within like their own household both emerald and oj are so like well written and and well thought out in ways that go way beyond what is often allotted to any characters in a genre movie like this but especially black characters in a genre movie when I when I first started getting into filmmaking, no one could imagine a black filmmaker kind of making, you know, a genre movie. At, at that point, we mostly had Spike Lee and then Antoine Fuqua was kind of just showing up. He wasn't like the force he was today, where if you mentioned Antoine Fuqua, it was like, oh yeah, it's the same thing with Gina Prince Bythewood. She wasn't, you know, she was doing well. She had like love and basketball, but that really kind of added to the perception of what a black filmmaker was, where you have to make this kind of, if I would define it, it's like this character drama that shows how hard it was, you know, growing up as a black American under these circumstances, whether, you know, you're growing up kind of like in the hood or going to like a black historical black college or whatever it is. And preferably starring Omar Epps. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that there was a lot of imagination in Hollywood at the time in terms of what you can be, because when I went in and still definitely today, I was mostly interested in writing genre. You know, I, I did a few things for development and for courses, but everything I wanted to write was in comedy or horror or action or something like that. And I think now black filmmakers and, and kind of minority filmmakers in general are starting to kind of like break those boundaries. And I think part of what's really funny about this is that, and I know the part Emily is really excited to talk about here, but this is kind of the stuff that, you know, we grew up on, like, you know, anime and comic books and all that stuff and what strongly influences us. So, you know, Spike Lee grew up in a very 
particular era that kind of influences filmmaker, what we grew up in, like brand new one. And this is how our sensibilities have kind of evolved. And, and the last thing I just want to make really quickly is that, as I was saying, you know, the character writing is so strong, but I also think in terms of both movies, everything, everywhere, all at once, and nope, these still manage to be universal because to some degree, everyone can like identify with that. You can identify with a family member that you're kind of like estranged from, but kind of want to repair that bond you guys had when you were younger, you know? And there's definitely things that are keenly cultural about these films, but in terms of just having that commonality, that common language, we're all able to really relate to them. Yeah, and to your point about the genre film, I feel like the term anti-genre is really apt because it's not just combining genres or, or you know, eschewing the, the mantle of a particular genre, but also reacting to genres. And yeah. that is one place that I feel like diversity is really important. It is something that is relatable because we've all, re- we've all kind of seen the same things, but have different reactions to them. And, and that's a conversation that I am incredibly invested in in media. One of the things about this movie that I thought about a lot was our conversation on this show about gremlins and how we talked about how the creatures in gremlins were really taken for granted, especially by the white people in gremlins, which were most of them. And in this movie, you have this sense of wonder and terror the same kind of sense of wonder and terror like the abyss or close encounters and we now have a new and different perspective that i feel is really really solidified by the scene with the chimp that this reflection of ourselves that we see in these creatures is terrifying because it's unknowable and is is more effective when it's unknowable but not evil I do appreciate this movie doing its part to raise awareness of, yeah, chimps are really fucking strong and dangerous. Don't fuck with them. They will fucking kill you. Don't fuck with chimpanzees. Yeah. I found it interesting what you were saying about the Western elements of it, because correct me if I'm wrong, it does feel like between uh, movies like this and uh, The Harder They Fall that came out on Netflix last year, that there is a conscious concerted effort to reclaim the historically accurate black cowboy. Yes. And man, do I feel like before the, you know, he gets killed by a quarter falling from the sky, you could have Keith David star in like a real, you know, Clint Eastwood style modern Western yeah, type he, movie. He could be a Shane very easily. Yeah. He would rock in that. And he was kind of a Shane with his beautiful voice coming in as like a ghost. I do have a question for it because and maybe this is just me just reading to something that isn't necessarily there or me just not trusting anyone and like who's too deep into Hollywood. The whole claim that they're the descendants of the jockey in the first ever motion picture. Do we think that's real or do we think that's something Keith David made up to promote like his horse rank, like his horse trainer business in Hollywood? Because it sounded like that Keith David started the business and they only ever talk about it in a very rehearsed, memorized speech. So I like I always just wonder, like, is this real or is this like a sales gimmick? I'll let everyone else answer then give me a long answer. But I personally thought it was real. 
I definitely think it's real. I mean, thinking of my, my own grandpa, who, surprise, is Black. Like, it is It is very much a, we, this is a claim that we have. Like, no one can take this from you. This will always be a part of your heritage. So don't let anyone tell you otherwise. We were there first. We were there even when they first started filming. Like, you can't cut us out. of. I don't think there's any reason to, like, within the story itself, to sort of undercut that idea. I think it's very much, like, it's legitimate. The only thing that put the thought in my head was when they were playing the commercial, and I realized, like, oh shit, this is word for word the exact speech that Emerald had in the first one. And like, I I, I kept being like, are you going to bring it up or like outside or in context? Like that it it means something to you? Well, given how fast talking Emerald is, that makes sense that it's like, is this something she is just sort of running with? Or like, yeah. I actually think it's interesting that you picked up on it being disingenuous because I, I hadn't requested it once. And I think that's because in Hollywood, everyone kind of has a canned story that's kind of like rehearsed over and over again. That was the other thing. Like it was the, it was the Hollywood element of it too. Even with kind of like my mentors, you know, people will have a story kind of like out of pocket. And, you know, I, I don't quite have anything yet because I'm not quite kind of like as practiced when I walk into meetings or pitches or whatever but you know i'll be like you know my name is jamal joseph you know i have a a a master's degree in film and by the way the first time i nearly died i was like you know two months old something like that to give people a brief overview of my history but then it also makes them interested my dad has like a similar thing where he'll mention oh he's a columbia professor you know he was part of the black panther party he was arrested and he'll tell the story about how he before he became a columbia professor which involves, you know, being on the campus at Columbia University and talking about, you know, how they had to burn to pitch down. And I can recite that story because he's told it so many times. But, you know, I, I think half of the industry is just like selling yourself as fast as possible, as much as you are the project, because you might not get that one, but you want them to remember you and then, you know, bring you back to the next one. So that was my interpretation of it anyway. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's practice, but I, I think it's very real. And I think it's very deliberate on Jordan Peele's part to put that there. Because of the element we were talking about, about reclaiming black cowboys, the idea that this is a Western and the idea that, you know, black people are new in the movie business, that this is something that they haven't been there. And like the, he has this sort of like central tenant in this movie of like, no, we've been here the whole time. You know, the first film was a black man on a horse. We were here. It was then we got pushed out. You know, we, there were plenty of black cowboys doing this work but then it became a like cool thing that white people wanted to associate with being independent and you know standing tall and all this stuff and they have no interest in portraying black people that way they wanted to portray white people that way and so they took cowboy work from you know being something that real folks did to something that's a movie thing and uh they've been like we've been here speaking from Jordan Peele's perspective like we've been here the whole time it's not that we just got here it's yeah. that we've been pushed to the background. Yeah, the identity of the jockey on the horse is historically not known. And it's interesting too, because it is the first film reel which involves a forgotten Black actor and an animal, which is, I think, really important to the theme because we remember the image, but we don't remember who that's the hungry camera lens, right? That is the issue with the dream that you never wake up from. When you put something on display, you feel like you can control it or you feel like you you can claim it when the truth is a lot more 
complex and i feel like that also comes into play here with the ufo not being a spaceship full of aliens in a lot of these movies like the day the earth sits still or a lot of the the arthur c clark work and a lot of the like mid 20th century science fiction there becomes this narrative of the aliens being a greater intelligence that is supposed to come in as a conscious or a conscience to mankind you know the invading alien that narrative also hasn't gone away but in this case it's not a binary thing where it's either the aliens are evil or the aliens are good this thing is neither evil nor good i always like the mysterious benefactor alien just because i understand the appeal of like we're so bad at managing ourselves. Please let there be something better that can do it for us. Yeah. <laughs> we suck as a species so hard. I feel like there's some privilege in there. The fact that the movie is called Nope, right? Where some people would have the the courage to approach something like that. I don't want to say courage. Yeah, I'm not sure courage it's is hubris. the word. Uh, yeah, uh, the hubris, hubris. That's a much yeah. better term. Melanin lackingness? well and i think that by the fact that that i chose the term courage initially is an indicative of our blind spots there you know for sure because it's not it's just it's a human curiosity that comes from naivete in a lot of cases and this movie has a lot to say about naivete when it comes to things that we think we can control hence the story of the chimpanzee so just on your point like the hubris the insistence that i can connect with this thing or i can control this thing we see that with the horse also with that first yeah. scene you need to respect this creature like it's bigger it's stronger it can end your life without trying yeah. that hubris and from jupe especially to respond to his trauma by repeating it i mean that is jupe's entire life and death defined by the hubris mistake of thinking that a wild dangerous animal can be controlled was your yeah. friend and the lack of processing that just gets you killed by a ufo i want to talk a little bit about juke one of the things that's interesting is that i do think there's sort of an intentional contrast between him and oj in this movie they are both in one case a beneficiary in one case a victim of just like strange accidents and fate right and that like jupe interprets the fact that he didn't get killed by this chimpanzee as some sort of sign that like he has a connection with these things that like he can he can master it somehow that he is above this that he's above getting to beaten getting beaten to death by a chimpanzee or swallowed by this alien whereas oj has been sort of this victim of seeing his his father who was this you know strong intelligent well put together guy who just got killed by random shit falling out of the sky and like yeah, he he asked that question about like, what do you call a bad miracle? You know, it's something extremely unha unlikely that happened to him. A series of extremely unlikely things that happened to him that he is he is reading as as more of like a curse than anything. Is that you know, there's there's nothing bad that can't happen to him, and that he you know takes that as like a thing that he can that keeps him alive in you know the climax and the, the later parts of this movie is that he is completely ready for something bad to happen to him and boy let me tell you having seen this movie once and coming back to it knowing what was going on jupe is a son of a bitch like yeah i i yep. did not realize it watching the first time but this man is feeding this alien horses and like 
he is doing it as part of the show. Like he's intentionally. The first thing he tells you is don't feed the white animals. That's what they always tell you. Don't feed white animals. Yeah, no, like he's, but that he's murdering these horses, like to get this show, to get this kick. Which he has been doing weekly for six months. That is so many horses. But at the beginning of this thing, they are having this conversation where he's like, where OJ is like, look, I want to like figure out a way to start buying these horses back. And he's like, Oh yeah, sure, no problem. Knowing full damn well that these horses are no horse. Well, also yeah. he comes and invites them to come to the show. What did he think their reaction would be to seeing the horses they sold him be eaten by a UFO creature? So that's the thing I'm wondering. Like, do we think his naivete is tied to so like OJ and? Jupe have different roles in the entertainment industry, right? Like, yeah, Jupe was the star, literal star of his show, and not just the star of his show. He's the only person that doesn't get injured, and so he's like, "I'm special. It's all about me." OJ works behind the camera. His whole thing is have a respect for animals. Don't turn your back on the animal. Don't look it in the face. Keep that away from them. Like, so, like his informed trait is just being careful, being cautious. I'm a trained horse person. But I know that I too, if I if I underestimate this animal, it could kick a hole in my chest, no problem. And so part of the reason he survives is like he has that healthy respect. And he understands like even though I love this horse, this horse loves me and I've raised it and trained it, it could still, if I let my guard down, it could be really bad. And so I wonder if like we're intended to see that juxtaposition, but also to understand like they have completely different approaches to the world, right? OJ's whole thing is responsibility. I've got to keep the fridge going. I've got to make sure this business stays. Jupe is, I'm the star. I've got to bring people in. Like My whole thing is like being the spectacle as opposed to creating the spectacle. I think it's almost like respect for the animals almost translates into morality in this movie. Like yeah, I feel like absolutely. Emerald gets more of the big hero moment, but I feel like that she has like an arc. Like I don't, I feel like OJ doesn't go on as much of an arc just because he kind of already starts as like, he is the figure who has the ultimate, like he is our avatar of good treatment and respect and understanding of animals. And he prioritizes the animals ever, no matter yeah. what. Like, I love the yeah. scene where they're at the, like the fast food restaurant with the amazing off-screen spot with like the fight <laughs> behind him in the window. Yes. Just great stuff. Like, I'm always just a fan of like those kinds of background details, but when he's trying to do like an actual debrief and start like talking strategy and what to do and angel and emerald are just like we we don't want to no just yeah, angel literally stop. coming to read the room yeah yeah <laughs> no one wants to talk about that bro yeah. yep. like i love like what a great wonderful human moment but also again one that shows that like oj is the most like focused and on top of and understanding and like he's the worst like with people skills i don't know i I just think it's really great how the movie positions him as like especially with his understanding of animals and that theme like he's kind of always in the right but he's never like you know in like a mary sue insufferable way like in a very well done way i kind of want to go backwards a little bit here because there's something i didn't quite realize until we started discussing it and it goes back to this thing about the black cowboy and i guess kind of how the wild west and the frontier war like in general but there's a real sense i think of 
exploitation versus using the land to kind of like your advantage, which are two very different approaches that I think, you know, settlers could have taken. And we chose a lot of, or rather they chose a lot of the, the other where, you know, let's exploit the land, let's exploit our resources, you know. And so, yeah, there, there he is kind of feeding horses. You know, he's, he's, he's exploiting OJ's family at the same time that he's trying to exploit the alien, right, for his own yeah. personal gain. And he gets like, he, he does get his karmic feedback for that, for everything he does. But it is interesting that kind of like in this, in this cowboy narrative, the guy who has most made the identity out of being a cowboy is the one who's kind of the, the most exploitative out of all of them. And this is actually something I wanted to mention before when we were talking about the origin of the family and them reclaiming the cowboy identity. But when you first start studying annotation, it is staggering the amount of westerns that you find out were actually the story of like a black cowboy that mm-hmm. Hollywood wanted to adapt and then they're like let's put John Wayne in there because there's no way an audience is going to watch like a black man all the way through or whatever it's a staggering number and I think I told the story in the podcast last time you know so feel free to edit this out if I've already mentioned it but this the story of the Harry movie that was made was amazing where they tried to get this movie made like 10 years ago and there was an executive that was running into it. He's like, yeah, this is great. Let's get Julia Roberts as Harry. You know, let's put her, put her in there because <laughs> I see you shaking your eye. I would, I would watch the fuck out of Julia Roberts as Harriet Tubman, like in the same way as that, like Donald Glover skit, like stand up right, about would... Michael Sarah as Shaft. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. I would watch that just for like the holy shit, they did what? <laughs> Yeah, I think it's so funny to me. Well, not funny. That's not the word. But like, no, it's funny. Yeah, weird. <laughs> Julia yeah. Roberts as Harriet Tubman is objectively funny. I'm sorry. It's funny because in my head, like, I had no connection to Julia Roberts and Scarlett Johansson, but apparently she was a Scarlett Johansson like 15 years ago. Oh like, yeah, Julia I was Roberts has the like, sense not Trek? to do that. Unfor- you know, fortunately. I mean, I forget where, but like, I. I think I heard somewhere like every major black action star of like the last 30 years has had like a Bass Reeves pitch that they couldn't get off the ground. Yeah, I I think the interesting thing to learn, like learning the history of Harriet Tubman is not like obviously, obviously she's black, but pretty notoriously like she was stocky and strong and knew how to use a shotgun and could beat some ass if she needed to. There's nobody like there's almost nobody in Hollywood for them to cast that would be anything like a real Harriet Tubman. I mean, they're out there. There are people out there, but they're not like, they don't have the same star power. You know, they don't have the name. I mean, size wise, I don't know. You get Quinta Brunson in like a, in a gym for six months and just really work up that upper body. Maybe she's the right height to pull that off. But like even Harriet, the casting is very Hollywood. They just, you know. Yeah. It's black Hollywood. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot of like, I'm sorry, what was this historical person's actual skin tone? Ah, whatever. Zoe Saldana's fine. You, yeah. You know, it's it's a attitude where it's like, it doesn't matter. It's more about the story that counts. You know, I did something. I don't think I can legally mention the name. I'll say it was a pirate story. I'll put it like that. B, you kind of know a bit more about this than everyone. Oh, yeah. I know. I know. I know a bit of this story, but I'll, I'll let you tell it. Yeah. I mean, it could be how gracious of me to let you tell your own story. You know, it's this like fascinating story about this person that comes from a family that had a lot of different cultural backgrounds. She had a brother with kind of 
a medical condition. And none of this stuff was reflected at all in the original script that they gave me. And, you know, I'm, I basically am the writer for the uh, uh, rewrite of this, of this screenplay. You know, that's already been decided. So I'm not selling myself. I'm saying this is the direction where I think it needs to go. I think we should, you know, really focus in on this person's life because she had a really fascinating life. This is like some, some great stuff. And people are like, oh, well, that's not the part that's important about it. We just wanted like a female pirate. It's like, you know, that's the important part. I'm like, you, you got to be kidding me. To erase her whole kind of like cultural background and her motivation and all that, it's, it's, you just kind of like want the name and nothing else. It's like insane to me, but it, it's, it's sadly a very common attitude. And again, played by Julia Roberts. Yeah, I man, that, that's really interesting to me. There was one thing I wanted to come back to that's it's sort of related to this is we mentioned OJ and that he, he is sort of like the moral center of this movie to some extent. I, I do think he has an arc, which is that like his arc is that he knows what's right from the beginning and he can't speak up. Like he mm. can't take charge of things. He's used to initially deferring to his dad, you know, doing what his, his dad does to letting him run things. And when he loses his dad, he can't be the authority figure that he needs to be to like step up and tell these people what's right and to do what he knows is right. Eventually he has to take center stage in the story. He has to be the one that, you know, lures the alien out. He has to do what's right. He has to literally stand up and make this thing look at him so that his sister can get away. And I think that's, you know, that's an incredible arc. I can't see, you know, him him really at the beginning of this movie being able to make that decision that, you know, he he knows the right thing to do rather than deferring to other people to, to choose to do the right thing. Because he is, at the beginning, really desperate. Like, he's, you know, not able to talk to these people, but he's losing his grip on his, you know, dad's legacy, on his horses, on the ranch. Like everything that matters to him is slipping away and he is powerless to do anything about it. And it's not until his sister presents like the idea of this alien as an opportunity that he is able to like see that as a way to get the money to to have this Oprah moment, but specifically to turn that into a way to save the ranch and his, his father's legacy. One thing I did really want to talk about, it is kind of where I think the movie failed a bit for me. I love this movie. I think this movie is absolutely incredible. But I think that the conversation that the movie starts but doesn't have a firm stance on or answer to is, okay, like how then should animals be used in the entertainment industry? Because the scene where it's like, oh, OJ got fired and now they're bringing in this ridiculous like green screen horse shaped, the vaguely horse shaped thing. And that's played as like kind of like a joke and like, a bit of a bad thing but also like aren't we also saying that these animals like shouldn't be like exploited and mistreated for the entertainment like where is the line like okay chimpanzee definitely needs to be cgi but we're gonna make real horses run through this wind tunnel like we made and i don't feel like the movie firmly decides like what is hollywood's responsibility and how should we be treating or depicting animals exactly then. And I just feel like it's a conversation that starts, but doesn't come to a firm conclusion on. Well, I feel like it's that they should be respected and we shouldn't expect things of them that, you know, that are unreasonable. If you're taking a film of a horse running, you know, horses run, they gallop and that's fine. Like you can, you can work around that, but like making a horse act 
and listen, you know, tell the horse we're ready to shoot, you know, like that's not how it works. I guess that's just where it is. And like in a movie all about the dangers of using animals to achieve spectacle, it's it still uses animals to achieve spectacle. Yeah, but I think also I think it's more than just about animals. And I think it's about exploitation as a part of spectacle. They do have the horses, but the horse action that I that was non-CGI was all things that the horses are trained to do, as opposed to an ape, which is they definitely not... made a real ass wind. I mean, unless that wind tunnel was totally CGI, I looked like some intense ass like spinny wind to send a horse through. I don't think that that was real. I mean, not when it's getting sucked up, but like lucky when they're being chased and stuff like that. Like that's a lot of wind and stuff. That looked real when OJ's riding Lucky. Like, there's this continuum that's like Jean Jacket, Gordy, Lucky, right? Like Jean Jacket is completely unknowable, not of this earth. There's no way to like train or work with this animal. You've got Gordy that's a chimp, and you got to be careful with chimps. Something gets them off. But we've worked with horses for millennia, right? Yeah. We've been in film for centuries. And so I think. There's still that respect, but there is, if you're talking about the degree to which you can know this beast, I think, if anything, OJ knows horses and trusts horses. There's a mutual understanding there that doesn't exist with those other two creatures, right? I think that's kind of why we get, uh, like, the chapters of the story in this way. So the, the story of the chimp, I've talked about it, and I've promised it, is based on a thing, a real thing that happened in, I think it was 2008 or something. It was, it was after the millennium, but there was a family that was keeping a chimp that had been on television that had been performing. And it was one of those Siegfried and Roy situations where they had a wild animal and they treated that animal like it was a child or, you know, like it was not an animal so much so that the chimp, because it was so stressed out in an unnatural environment, this is Travis and he was prescribed Xanax so he was taking all this Xanax and he also had alcohol there were a lot of missteps going on with the the training the so-called training because it's really easy to mistake the behavior of an ape which is very relatable to with the behavior of a human child on the surface I mean I, I treat my cats like I talk to my cats all the time like they they can hear me and understand me they don't and I know that probably but this the story of Travis is one of those things that is so horrifying because A, and talk about the Oprah shot, the woman whose face was clawed off by Travis the chimp appeared on Oprah and, and became like this recurring presence on Oprah at, before and after her surgery where she became this spectacle. She consented to this. But again, when you're when you're dealing with trauma, and a trauma that intense, the definition of consent in terms of that kind of spectacle gets really, really blurry. And it's really easy for media to exploit. We do see I, the result of like the surviving victim like yes. years later without lips. And it's, it's, yeah. A, yeah. Not to her. He even waves around in the crowd. Yeah. And then he calls her his first crush, which was weird. Oh, and she's wearing a t shirt of her pre mauled face yeah and it's all it's all an absolute psychological mind fuck just a whole lot of just a whole lot of trauma yeah so travis travis the chimp was a was in a bunch of commercials it was 2009 and 
he let me find the the name of his victim because i think that's pretty important here and it was nash and she's been she's appeared on the oprah winfrey show before and after her surgery and it was very similar she was wearing a veil just like the you know that's very like a one-to-one reference in this movie so that's that's important all right so that's that story yeah i think it the the layered approach thing is i think a thing that uh jordan peele is sort of notorious for at this point because you know us we talked about there being this moment where you're like wait are we the tethered are we the ones that are you know acting (laughs) like acting like these richer people even though we have no reason to buy boats and fancy you know second houses and things like that we're just trying to be like what they are i'm buying so many pokemon figurines i don't need this is clearly tethered shit (laughs) yeah but i I think the same thing applies here with the the sort of am i the ufo (laughs) yes you are you are a uhp i just i just think it is a lot of trauma but it's trauma turned into exploitation for profit which i think is relevant to the black American experience and the Asian American experience, you know? Yeah. Because that's almost for the longest time when I was mentioning, you know, what we do in, in kind of like Hollywood, that was like the other answer for the longest time. You could only make a certain, you know, you could only make kind of like the slave narrative as a movie. And that's what you had to make it to draw people there. And it's like, you know, and yeah, you attach a ton of, of, of black talent to it. I don't know if you saw the, the very recent controversy. It's this new movie where that will smith is is starring in i forget the name of the film emancipation emancipation yeah that might personally i i'm I'm neutral i'm like yeah it's a little weird but i don't like have suspicions right off the bat but the the producer of this film this white producer he bought like you know his his card of of you know the, the slave that the film was about to the premiere and he's like, oh, I wanted a piece of him to be here to film today. And the founder of The Blacklist, Franklin Leonard, on Twitter, actively pointed out that's really weird. <laughs> it's like, that's yeah. super fucking weird. He yeah. talks about how it's part of his collection. This dude has multiple pieces like this. Oh, no. And you bring one like a date to a film premiere? What's wrong sorry, with you? Your collection is pieces of people that's a thing that's in literally every serial killer story yeah that's not an okay thing to have i think jay you've you've hit on something that was sort of in my mind that i i've been thinking about is that exploitation of trauma right the only character that really is like actively that we see actively dealing with trauma is oj he is constantly thinking he's not trying to run away from it he's not trying to put on a face now I do feel yeah. like this is a good point to a place to point out that Emerald does go to therapy. Apparently, uh, she has a therapist that she fucks yes. sometimes. She, she doesn't do therapy correctly. She's winning. It doesn't therapy. happen by osmosis. You can't just absorb it through the yeah. skin. <laughs> I mean, I guess they have just some really colorful like pillow talk, right? You know, like I love. I very much love how casually gay Emerald is. Like, it's not a coming out thing. It's not like, oh, me and dad didn't get along because of homophobia. Like, Emerald is, we know Emerald is gay because she just casually brings up multiple women she's sleeping with and casually hits on a woman at an electronics store. One of my favorite moments is is the moment when she hits on that woman at the electronics store. We don't even see the woman, really. Like, we see, like, her arm 
as Emerald's walking past and she she says to the woman, oh, you look really pretty. You know, that's a really nice dress. And she turns to OJ and says, you look like she got a big house. Yeah. <laughs> <was> like, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Palmer is a gift. She's electric she's in this movie. I have in my notes, like, Kiki Palmer could sell me a bridge. Like, it's just, <laughs> oh, yeah, whatever you say. <laughs> I mean, I love how she's doing the speech before she fucks off to the craft table. Like, she is selling all of these people, like, in there. But, um, I mean, in terms of how it is about spectacle and exploiting spectacle and for trauma, like, I do think you get an interesting gamut of, I don't know, attitudes towards it where, you have Jupe, who is just pure exploitation and doesn't know the danger he's in. You have the growl. You have like the lowest voice of all time, who at a certain point just seems to decide like suicide for art, <laughs> like and knowingly destroys himself for this quest for spectacle, which I think is an interesting. I think as creators have all been in there where it's like that self-destruction is worth it for creative fulfillment like i think i think hopefully you don't see it out but i think it's a relatable impulse yeah, so i can yeah. stay up till 3 a.m to finish writing the script but i think and again i i absolutely love the this ending because what i love that ultimately this the oprah shot this perfect inconsiderable inconvertible yep that's pronounced correctly this is what happens when you read and you don't know how words are actually pronounced and you spent some time in the uk there you go like she gets the shot she gets the proof and yet we see we very explicitly see her not like ignore the photo that she spent this whole movie trying to get in favor of rushing like to oj and i don't know it's just very nice that like for as much as you know spectacle and fame has been their goal ultimately like the imagery of the movie is rejecting like is rejecting self-destructive spectacle for the connection of family yeah well i also feel like her her trauma or her like trauma was that she hadn't gone to do an akira slide and then she got to do an akira slide (laughs) same but her stress response i mean her her panic response to the situation is finally tapered off now that she knows that she's got the shot you know Mm -hmm. and i also there's so much there's so much about it it's a great Um, movie it's fucking yeah. amazing. The fact that like she's interested in the shot. OJ is interested in understanding as much as he can the creature and then protecting his horses. Like he he just needs to know enough rules to protect his horses. And then Angel is the, you know, aliens guy. And- I loved Angel at the dinner table being like, we're doing this for like altruistic reasons, right? Like th- yeah. this could be saving people. Like we could be doing this because we're good people. And there's like, Sure. He's thinking if of you this want. On, on a kind of a global scale. And I feel that kind of harkens back to the the sort of exploitation because there's also, okay, the ancient aliens, and this is something that came up with my friends and I when we were watching the movie. He does he does in fact cite ancient aliens. He cites ancient aliens. Yes. A, the phrase cite ancient aliens is like making my English teacher instincts just like spasm. Like, I know. How dare you? They also cite the Siegfried and Roy tiger attack. Yes. Like they, they reference do. that yeah. directly in the movie. They're culturally literate people here. You know? Yeah. <laughs> the, the thing I want to talk about with ancient aliens is that this is a series that continually ascribes the 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 accomplishments of ancient civilizations that are not white 
to aliens. And so, and I've seen a lot of really great like responses, like meme responses to it. It's just, just because white people couldn't do it doesn't mean it was aliens, you know? And this is also something that I really appreciate about this movie because he's, uh, Angel's whole shit is played entirely for laughs. I am so continually impressed by Jordan Peele's ability to hide things in plain sight. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We get we'll that gimmick later. with the well when she's like, she's wandering around being super kinetic, touching everything, getting into somebody's photo with the well. That, like, we get that brief, like, introduction of that thing that is the answer to a question posed throughout the rest of the movie, which is, how do we get a shot of this thing if it kills all the electronics when it's around? That it's like, this is the answer to that. And we don't ever realize it until, like, that moment when it's like, Oh no, this is this is the thing she needs. This movie really loves its Chekhov guns. Like I as soon as she started talking about being a motorcyclist, I'm like, I know she does the I know the trip. Like she better fucking ride a motorcycle. When it, it's so like it's so not Chekhov's gun. It's like Chekhov's rubber band. Chekhov's like <laughs> Yeah, you know, but, Chekhov's like I, I, arm I brace. Think... Like it's it's not things you expect to come back. But then you see him again and you're like, oh, shit, that's the answer. It was there. But don't the you time. think that's a marker of like Jordan Beale's like directing and storytelling? Because we yeah. see that in Get Out with like the camera flash and like the whole like, oh, like MMA is a chess game. It's your mind. Then you got to do three moves. And like all of these things come back. In his movies. Yeah, oh, they're just they're all just so well and tightly constructed. That's exactly what my point is going to be. I, I, I think what makes his movies so kind of great and engaging is that there's not like a single wasted element when you watch him in there where it, it like everything is going to come back around even the bizarre footage antlers kept watching you know or yes. editing in the background of the film was relevant somehow to the greater narrative yeah it was all the eyes of those animals of looking all these yeah. animals in the eye and i was like <laughs> so good this is it's so cohesive it's 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 really good it's really good, you guys. Just how sure all of these, the images, the th- you know, all these things mesh together, and you know, it's even more so like the the Chekhov's rubber band thing. Like it, it's watching Jackie Chan fight choreography. It's like you don't know what's going to be useful. Like, is this just yeah. a prop? Is it just background? Like, which one of these things is going to come into play? Like, there's no way to know. Yeah, and you know, even like this is Jordan Peele's third movie, and yeah, he may might have like he's got his recognizable steps here but this is also very different from any of his other movies and he still manages to grip you in a way that you know it's like you can't really predict what's happening but you are still so involved in the characters that you're not trying to you're not like critiquing the movie it's hard to critique the movie because you're so busy enjoying it yeah. yeah, you know, I I think that's really I think there are two things there that you mentioned like that I, I I've been itching to comment on, but the but the first part is that Jordan like respects his audience, he respects their intelligence, and I think that's super important in the narrative. You know, and it's really easy to tell. I think easier than a lot of creators give it credit for when like someone is condescending you through their work. Mm-hmm. that's where you know M. Night started to fall off a little bit where you know he had his gimmick but then he worked into every film that just didn't trust the audience enough to put everything together it's like you know here let me explain it to you exactly what's happening and you know then I got 
old for a lot of people. Yeah. Old. I was gonna say, listen to y'all talk about old was delightful. <laughs> oh. Thank you. Well, I'm, I'm glad something good came out of that movie. Came out of us watching that movie. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I enjoyed yelling about it with everybody, but um, yes. <laughs> I gotta say about the characters, especially about our main group. This is the type of group of people that I love following. You know, I could, I could, just in terms of how like they they came together as a group and there's a lot going on with all of them even if it doesn't come to the surface of the film you kind of get that like angel kind of gives us the rundown that his life is a mess and then he starts like spotting off these conspiracy theories and he's like oh okay that's why she left you you know it's you know and so so you but i i really want to know what cw show you left him for <laughs> all of them outer banks you know, Antlers has to have a lot of bullshit going on if he's, you know, prepared to sacrifice his life to get, like, the perfect shot. This Antlers outfit shows it, like, is a whole story. This is the fact oh, that yeah. he's wandering in this, like, almost Jedi robe-looking thing up on the hillside. He's so fucking haunted. I think Angel finds, like, a pill bottle in Antlers' bag, so I wonder if we're getting one of those, like, classic, like, oh, I'm dying, so before I die, I'm going to get the perfect shot of me being eaten by an alien. But also, like, go out on my own terms. Yeah, one of yeah. one of those, like, I, I wonder if, like, that's, like, possibly some subtext going on with his character. I think you're right. I had a slightly different read on Antlers, especially in the, in the greater context of it being a story about exploitation. Last year, I took one of the people I used to mentor on a trip. I actually met her because she was a documentary subject of mine. She's a surfer, all that stuff. And while we were on this trip, she kept mentioning this documentary she watched about an octopus that the uh, documentary team was following. And when they saw it dying and could have done something to help it, they didn't do anything to help it at all. And this upset her so much. She eventually asked me about my opinion on it. And I said, I don't think I would have been in much of a different position from those filmmakers. You know, when you're a documentary filmmaker, there's almost like a, I, I guess ethical isn't the way to put it, especially since the creature died in this context, but you're not kind of like involved. When I did the documentary on her, I became friends with her and her family after the documentary, but that's kind of the way documentary filmmaking is. You really have to take a step back and remove yourself from your subjects that you're following. And Atler's seems to be like the extremist version of that of letting his subject kind of like take its course and, and really just making to an almost a cynical degree like the ultimate documentary like i'm gonna i'm gonna watch this creature do its thing even if it means that it's going to eat me because i'm such a professional filmmaker that was kind of like my my read on it it's hard to explain it sounds a little cold and indifferent and it, and it kind of is but for the sake of being ethical you're not you know really supposed to get involved and deep down in there so. yeah that's a good point because especially when we're talking about the relationship of the camera and the creature and how we expect certain creatures to to behave and we sometimes get into this this question that is almost quantum where like are as we are observing it we are affecting it so are we going to submit ourselves entirely or keep ourselves completely separate, you know, and how do we do that while also interacting with an environment where we can look at it? And in this case, Jean Jacket, the monster, is essentially, the, it will not attack unless it can see your eyes. And it, I think that very smartly, its design is very much like an iris and pupil, 
I I love that rule. Like I absolutely love, especially with the theme of spectacle. Yeah, because it, it makes the danger of it literal that like your survival is dependent on your ability to fight the temptation to look at spectacle. Yeah. And only by turning away from everything that like human nature tells you to look at, do you have a hope of surviving? It's literal. it's such, that's what I love about horror. And it's a big thing I love about superheroes too, is when you can take those kinds of big metaphysical themes and really literalize them. Yeah, it yeah. really has this sort of like Orpheus and Eurydice kind of thing to it of like the only way you can survive is to not do the thing that would ensure you survive normally. Like you can't look yeah. back, you <laughs> yeah. can't look up, you know? Yeah. But Lot's wife, right? Like you don't look back. Like you don't. <laughs> one thing yes. you're told to do is not to look. Like yeah. And that's an animal thing. I would much rather be eaten, turned into salt than digested by spaceship stomach. Yeah. I still get, I'm still getting nightmares about that. That is a real bad way to go. Yeah, the fact that it's so slow. One of the awesome, like, wild ideas I had while watching this was like, man, these folks all have some trauma they have to work through after these events. Who's going to, like, what therapist can you see to work through this sci-fi bullshit? It's a question I have for a lot of protagonists of various films. If I was to, like, write, like, nope fanfic, I think it'd be really interesting to do something that, like, you know, maybe has a hunting knife on them and just somehow manages to, like, fight their way out of Jean Jacket, but then Jean Jacket's up in the clouds. So after all that, they just like fall to their deaths. <laughs> yeah. So I know Jean Jacket uh, vomited on the house, but I feel like the fact that they're talking about how Jean Jacket is so territorial, I feel like Jean Jacket deliberately vomited on the house as a part of like a territorial, like almost territorial pissings. Oh yeah. Where... I mean, it it spits the the horse directly into his windshield like that can't that can't have been an accident that's a small target for him to hit Jean yeah. Jacket fucking hated that like that practice horse yeah he's like wait a minute wait a fucking minute I mean this isn't if chocolate. I went to my normal sandwich shop and they instead served me a sandwich made of plastic and I ate it I would also be very upset so I <laughs> yeah. get where you're coming from Jean you Jacket you would also come and eat all of them the next time yeah. Well, I think like it's it's interesting to me to talk about this because I, I don't feel like we have hit a point where we have to like run down the things that this movie does that are progressive because I think we've hit all of them already. And it's as part of the movie. It's not like something that's extemporaneous or we really have to think about this movie really I mean, we barely even talked about the fucking TMZ guy. Yeah, and just well, how is a TMZ not subtle guy. that everything with that character was. And the only thing he cared about was his camera. Like he was and being recorded. Not even his camera, just not having his camera, just everything being recorded. When he's when OJ is helping him up and he's like, Why aren't you filming this? Yeah. And, and to me, that was really funny because there are a few other than are very sensitive about their cameras. Yeah. <laughs> and he has no idea there's an alien anything here. He's just there to like cover the horrible deaths of these people that disappeared at the you yeah. know, the show. It it is interesting to me because it, it has so much commentary built into it without stopping to deliver commentary. It is, you know, it does have a, a queer character at its center. It is feminist without really trying to be. There is a lot of stuff about class and money in here. There's a, easily a lot of you know, more stuff about race and social justice than there is in 95% of the movies we talk about on here. And, mm -hmm. like, it does deal heavily with trauma and mental health and, like, 
going through that stuff without like really needing to feel like it's pausing to do those things because they are very much part of the story and the characters are so well considered that those things like come up naturally in their stories yeah and the way that that each character is obviously dealing with trauma and you know and whatever they were through they're dealing with it in, in very different ways, which is, I, I think, really important conversation-wise with the the how they're processing now, like like you said, Jay, with all the different points of view, you know, how these different characters process that. Yeah. So I guess, let me ask the, the most obvious question. Uh, do we recommend people check this movie out? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. I didn't know anything about this movie except that it was like I think Ben said something about Spielberg and it was like it's kind of like Spielberg horror and that is all I knew about it and seeing how like it's trending right now as like one of the best films of 2022 deservedly so yeah yeah absolutely one of the best films of 2022 and so I went on I went on my streaming service and I just bought it because I'm like I hear this movie's good it's probably gonna be good and now I'm really glad that I did because I'm gonna show everyone yeah it's on right now i don't know if this will be the case when this comes out but right now it is on peacock for free oh that's how i watch it you can just drop in there if you have the peacock service you can watch it at no additional cost whatsoever so yeah i i legitimately think i mean for me with the exception of, of some weird indie stuff that i've seen this year it's i mean and this would usually be the the weird indie thing but it's like neck and neck between this and everything everywhere all at once for like the best movie of this year. I don't think much else comes close. And everything everywhere all at once is A24, which is like, <laughs> oh, the places right. you'll go. <laughs> they're, they're great. It's like a surprise in every box. You just know it's going to be weird. And that's all, you know. And then you just go and I mean, they really, they really make some. Sometimes they miss, but they really pick up some really incredible movies there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's going to be a really hard year for me to decide what my favorite movie is. Um, everything, everywhere, all at once was incredible. Nope was incredible. I think the same thing. But, you know, there are others. I really thought The Northman was a different and, like, incredibly made film. And I, I don't think it would, like, pass a lot of the progressivism test. I, I don't think... Mm-hmm. There's a piece of filmmaking. It's just like really solid and strong. There's like the Woman King, you know, which came out. Oh, I really need to see that. Yeah. Viola yeah. Davis, my heart. Yeah, I, I, you know, I don't think it's going to quite be in my contenders, but you mentioned The Heart of They Fall. And and while I think it's an imperfect movie, Idris Elba and Regina King just absolutely steal the show and elevate it so much. So it's going to be a tough year for me to decide. But I will say this, due to personal reasons, I'm not going to be able to go to the movies for a while. Nope was the last thing I had seen in theaters, and it's going to be the last thing I'm able to see in theaters for a year. And I over the moon that it was that movie that I saw in theaters. I, I think it was the perfect thing to watch on a big screen. And you I picked a I, damn good one. Good for everyone, especially given like the Spielberg kind of like comparison. That if you're a fan of spectacle movies, if you're a fan of sci-fi, if you're a fan of horror, if you're a fan of like character drama, if you like your comedy, I mean, it's got everything there. Yeah, I yeah. If this movie is released, re-released in theaters, which I hope it is, especially in this era of streaming. Oh yeah. Oh my I, god. I yeah. I wouldn't just recommend seeing this movie. I would recommend seeing this movie in a theater. And I hate going to theaters. Sure. It's difficult for me to go to theaters these days. But this is a movie that absolutely benefits. I mean, either way, if you have a nice setup, you can watch it and enjoy it. But 
it was made for the theater, which is not something that is said a lot for movies these days. Yeah. I mean, even I have a pretty nice TV, but like, I think there's something about those first scenes with him seeing the creature moving between the clouds and sort of the the quickness and surprise with which everything moves in those scenes that like is is just perfect for a theater that you know still still comes across somewhat on a tv but it's just not it's not at the same level yeah it's some real industrial light and magic quality to it and speaking of which what do we uh what do we want to recommend for people off this one uh i mean we talked about it earlier but uh, jaws definitely jaws yeah you haven't seen Jaws, and we still haven't covered it on here, surprisingly. But we Jaws definitely need to. Worth and no, no actual sharks. So a no spectacle animal attack movie that respected its animals enough not to use it, but it did make everyone very afraid of sharks and I think did have devastating long-term effects on the shark population. So <laughs> whoopsie doopsie. That's a, yeah. I mean, probably though people should be justifiably afraid if they see a great white shark. Oh <laughs> like, uh, yeah, definitely. It's time, for sure. it's time to go. Kill it. Yeah. Um, like if you're seeing a great white, like it's not good regardless of Jaws. Yeah. Jay, what, what would you recommend? Oh, I would recommend... Arrival. It's a more clinical film than this one, but I think in terms of that process of discovery and trying to figure out an extraterrestrial creature and and what exactly it wants, but also in dealing with family drama and family trauma in a very different way that we haven't really seen before. Arrival is really great for that. Yeah. Yeah. Emmanuel, what, what would you recommend? I had two things in mind. I, I think Attack the Block has been mentioned a number of times, but on the heels of Black Sci-Fi, Danny Lore, they were on here, mentioned Clipping, their concept album. They have one called Splendor and Misery that imagines a slave revolt in space and just what that would mean. And each track sort of contributes to that story. And it's a blast. It's one of my favorite albums and name checks so much sci-fi. Awesome. And uh, what about you, Emily? What have you got? You know, at Close Encounters, I think, is worth watching just to give this film some some contrast in terms of the outlook and the abyss and things like that. But what I really want to recommend is a YouTube channel that is about respecting animals. It's called Casual Geographic. Yeah, that's an amazing is, title. Yeah, right off the bat, a, I'm into it. Yeah, it's a it's a black naturalist who is talking very casually about animals and all the crazy shit they do. And he did talk about Nope quite a bit. And he talks about Travis the Champ and uh, Siegfried and Roy and things like that. But it's a lot of fun and very interesting. And, you know, respect wildlife, please. <laughs> Absolutely. The one I wanted to recommend, I was reminded of it when we were talking sort of about anti-genre movies that, you know, are are sort of horror and base but then have sort of other stuff going on and a lot of people know gareth edwards from rogue one or godzilla as a director but before he directed those two movies he directed a movie called monsters it's about a photographer who is down in part of mexico that has been sort of ravaged um there have been sort of alien monsters that have fallen to earth and there's sort of a, a contaminated zone between where he is and the united states and it just so happens that while he's there, he bumps into the daughter of his, his millionaire boss. And uh, they're sort of basically closing down the borders of this part of Mexico that he's in. So they need to get out before before they're not allowed to leave. And so since he can't, he decides to take her through what's basically this 
contaminated zone between the two where these sort of monsters are everywhere and they don't they don't know where they are they're just sort of like having to work their way through you know to the u.s like they were they're basically being led by a coyote but that deals with monsters and it's this really interesting monster film that is also a romance movie that is like straight up tension for like a solid hour and a half it has really really trippy monsters in much the fashion that this movie has monsters that like you look at them and you're like wow what the fuck who came up with that that is unknowable and weird and giant and ancient and i think they they do an incredible job with that in monsters so that's that's one that's worth checking out i don't think is quite at the level of you know the the two anti genre movies we were talking about for you know being the big ones this year but it's definitely worth like going back and and taking a look at especially if you know you like rogue one which is a fantastic movie and you're you know looking to see what gareth edwards does with a different genre nice yeah well that i think wraps it up for us uh jay did you want to let people know where they can find out more about what you're up to well for me if you want to find more about me you can find my twitter which is at cynical angst um, I hope to be updating it with some more work-related stuff soon. And, you know, for questions, comments, requests, anything, you can email me at jjj20 at columbia.edu. Nice. Awesome. And uh, Emmanuel, where can, where can people hit you up? I am also on Twitter at yaylipskin2, posting about teacher things and media things. Come chat. Awesome. As for the rest of us, Emily is at Megamoth on Twitter and Mega underscore Moth on Instagram and at Megamoth.net. Ben is on Twitter at BenTheCon and on their website at BenConComics.com. And finally, for me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at JRome58 and on my website at JeremyWhitley.com. And of course, the podcast is on Patreon at Progressively Horrified on our website at ProgressivelyHorrified.Transistor.FM and on Twitter at ProgHorrorPod, where we would love to hear from you. And speaking of loving to hear from you, We would love it if you would rate and review this podcast wherever you're listening to it right now. That helps new listeners find it, helps work those algorithms for us. Hit those five stars and and help us out there. Thank you so much to Jay and Emmanuel for joining us. Guys, I love this movie. This was a real joy to to get to talk to all of you about it. Awesome. Loved it so much. I had a lot of fun. I have one more joke about Michael Wincott. Okay. Old man yells at Cloud. (laughs) Damn it. And that's the show. Nah, 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 nah. <laughs> oh, I'm allergic to that. God joke. damn it, Emily. I think you fucking won this podcast. I don't know. Now that you're properly horrified. I think you earned the game time ball with that one. Thanks. I will look into it. I'd be horrified. Well, until next time, may that joke keep you horrified. Oh. <laughs>